Today we're going to look at a meal uh, with Jesus Christ, a meal with the King. But meals are very significant in our lives. In all cultures, meals are very important. They're, they're a part of who we are, how we relate to each other. Um, it's a ritual of connection with one another. When you share a meal with someone, that's when you get to know someone better. That's when you get to connect with them. That's when um, you get to know someone. Yeah, so uh, meals are a way to create greater intimacy. That's why every, every good date will have good food involved. Just a little tip for all you guys out there. Meals are important. A shared, a shared meal is significant for us as humans. And a meal with Jesus is no different. Here we actually see a very famous scene in Christian history, and that's uh, the Last Supper, known famously as, a, as an artwork. Uh, but here this story, uh, this narrative in the Bible, we actually see how significant uh, not just the scene is as we look at it, but the words of Jesus as he reveals himself to his disciples better as he actually starts uh, to build an even bigger picture of what he's already shown them about who he is. What has he come to do? I wonder what you said when you answered that question, Jesus is, dot, dot, dot. What's, what's the answer to that question? Well, today we're going to get an even bigger picture of who Jesus is as he shares a meal with his disciples. That's one of the big questions, who is Jesus, as we've been um, working through this book of Mark. And today we'll uh, build that picture even more. Uh, just to give you a bit of context, last week we saw in Jesus begin his farewell discourse to his disciples. He knows he's going to the cross soon, so he's telling his final words to his disciples to tell them to watch out, to be on guard, to stay awake as persecution comes their way for the sake of Jesus Christ, and watch out for that. Um, today, <clears throat> excuse me, today we see the narrative progress, and it opens with some ominous lines. Have a look at verses 1 to 2 with me. So if you've got your Bibles there, keep them open. Verses 1 to 2 says this of chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Friends, these verses, they set the scene for us. It's almost time for the Passover feast, a huge Jewish festival in the city, and the religious teachers are scheming to kill Jesus. His death is right around the corner. But how will this come about? What events must happen for this to take place? Well, that's what we'll see. This sets the scene and sets our expectation for the narrative as we roll on. As the scene shifts, Jesus is at the house of a friend. Um, He's at, at the house of a friend and he's sharing a meal there when a woman comes in. A woman comes in. And she brings with her a huge alabaster flask of pure nard, which is an expensive perfume made from the oil of an Arabian root. Very, very expensive. And she actually comes up to Jesus. He's just sitting with his friends there. And she breaks open this flask and she pours it over his head. All over his head. And the disciples are sitting there. We might be thinking, this is odd. uh, But I'll tell you why it's significant later on. But the disciples, what they're seeing is just a waste of money. They're sitting, they say to each other, why has she done such a thing? The, the, The price of this oil that she poured over Jesus' head, we could have sold that and we could have, that's more than a year's wages. We could have fed so many poor people. What a waste of money. What is she doing? But Jesus says this to them in verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. 
She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The first thing I want you to note is verse 9. Um, this promise of Jesus Christ has come true. Isn't this amazing? That this story, this, what this woman has done, has, is recorded in the gospel so that millions of people and so, 2,000 years later are reading about her and what she did for Jesus Christ. This must be significant then. What has she done? What's so important about this? Why is this act so significant to be recorded in this manner? Well, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Because when this woman takes this expensive oil and anoints Jesus with it, what's she doing? She's worshipping Jesus Christ, the King. This is an act of utter, complete, heartfelt devotion towards Jesus Christ. This is love on another scale. This is a love that's bigger than any earthly love. This is true and pure worship for the King. She sees Jesus. And who is Jesus to her? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. Now, we're not sure. In verse 8, we see Jesus pointing to the cross. He says, this woman, she's prepared my body for burial coming. Yeah, I'm not, we're not sure if this woman, that was her intention uh, to prepare Jesus' burial. She was probably doing something that she didn't know exactly how significant it was. But we do know something, that as she actually anointed Jesus Christ, she was willing to give everything to him. Everything. An act of worship. Extravagant. Now imagine if you were there, you know, that the, the response of the people to this woman is understandable. Because if you were having a dinner party and you had a really important guest, whatever, whoever you want it to be, you know, someone really, really important, the most important person you can think of, but then someone came into that dinner party and then uh, got some perfume, $60,000 a year's wages, $60,000 worth of perfume and poured it over that person's head, you would be thinking to yourself, that is a waste. What a waste of money. Are you kidding me? What, how ridiculous. Why did you just waste all of that perfume, $60,000 worth on that person? Doesn't, doesn't matter how important they are, I'm sure you'd be thinking to yourself, this is a waste. This is extravagant. This is excessive. This is gratuitous. This is, this is unnecessary. Why would you do such a thing? But Jesus says to this woman that she has done a beautiful thing. This woman's actions are beautiful. Jesus is not saying that the poor don't matter. He's not saying that you shouldn't help the poor. He actually asked the disciples to help the poor. He says, the poor you will always have with you to help later on. He's not saying don't do that, but he's saying that you need to have your priorities right. You need to have your priorities right. Something else matters more than helping the poor, than loving the poor, and that's loving Jesus. It's loving Jesus. Jesus is worthy of worship. All worship. And when you give Jesus everything, that's going to look extravagant. That's going to look excessive. That's going to look gratuitous. That's going to, that's going to look ridiculous to everyone around you. They'll be thinking, what on earth are you doing? What a waste. But this is what Jesus calls beautiful. Everything. It's extravagant. 
because Jesus deserves it. He's our king. There's a lot of good things to do in this world. Um, and we've been, you know, we've been blessed with a lot. Uh, we're, we're all rich here. We can, we can give. Um, and Jesus commends us to be generous. Um, but he says that first and foremost, you need to love him. When we think of our priorities, we need to have Jesus front and center. Our love for Jesus Christ needs to be um, the reason that everything else flows out, that our love for people in this world come out of. A lot of people think that when they think about Christians, they think, um, what's a Christian? Well, that's someone that's nice. That's a nice person. And that's not a bad reputation to have, in a sense, that uh, Christians are nice. But that's not what we are. That's not what defines us as Christians, to be nice. Our being nice, our being good to others, only flows from a recognition of our love, of who Jesus is, and our love for Him. That's where our niceness flows from. That's where our goodness needs to flow from. Otherwise, it's just good, empty works that don't get us anywhere at all. They're an act of worship to our King, Jesus Christ. Let me say something to you. Worshipping Jesus is more important than being nice. Worshipping Jesus is more important than being nice. We need to understand that as Christians. If you call yourself a Christian, this is our identity. We aren't just good people. We're worshippers of Christ, first and foremost. And when you live like that, when you live in a way where you're captivated by Jesus and His glory, and it changes everything that you do, then people will think that you're ridiculous, that the things you do are a complete waste. But Jesus doesn't think that. They are beautiful in His eyes, and that's what we should care about. Our King, He is worthy of of all worship. As we continue this passage, we're going to see why. Why is Jesus worthy of all worship? We're going to see that as we continue. But as the narrative rolls on, we see Judas, one of the disciples, he slips out of the house while Jesus is, this woman's anointing Jesus, and he slips out and he heads to the chief priest and he makes an agreement to betray Jesus for a bag of money. And we see these ominous lines in verse 11. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The time is drawing near. The time is drawing near. The scene changes and it's almost time for the Passover feast. Um, this event was one of the most significant events in the Jewish calendar. It was a time where the Jewish people they actually remembered uh, what God had did, done for them back in the days of slavery back in Egypt, when Israel was enslaved by Egypt and God actually freed them and liberated them from Egypt. So they, ever since that day, they celebrated this meal called the Passover, where they ate some roast lamb and flatbread and bitter herbs in, in commemoration of this event, that God saved them. It was a feast to remember God and also to remember who they were as God's people. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they didn't have a place to celebrate this Passover meal, uh, but Jesus is not worried because he's the king. He's in control. He says to his disciples, go into town. Um, you're going to find a guy there carrying a water jar, which was quite odd back then because that was normally the woman's job. So it was a sign that this was someone different. You're going to find that man. He's going to have a room prepared. So the disciples go into town. They find that man. He's got a room prepared. And Jesus and his disciples go to this upper room and they celebrate the Passover. They celebrate the Last Supper. And Jesus' death is right around the corner. But even as his death is around the corner, he's still in control of what's going on. Um, normally the Passover meal was a time of celebration. 
just celebrating what God had done, remembering what God had done. Uh, the people used to sit around the table and share stories about how God's been working in their life. Sounds like a fantastic meal. I think we should do things like that more. Uh, like Jesus brings a serious tone to this conversation because he actually um, looks around and he says to his disciples, Truly, I say to you that one of you here will betray me. And the disciples go quiet. They're, they're shocked at this news. And they each say, surely not I, Jesus. This, it's not me. It's, it can't be. We will never do this to you. But Jesus goes on. It's one of you here. Someone who dips the bread into this bowl with me, who shares this meal with me. They will betray me. And woe to him, woe to him. After the shocking announcement about how his death will come about, Jesus goes on to tell them the significance about his death, about his sacrifice. Verse 22, Mark 14. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, friends, the significance of this meal being at the, um, this, the Last Supper, being at the Passover, it can't be overstated, the significance of this, this meal. Because the Passover was the, the key event in the history of God's people to actually define who they were. A key event. Now let me take you to the, back to the events of the first Passover. The first Passover back in Exodus 12, back in Egypt where God's people Israel were enslaved by the Egyptian empire. They had no hope whatsoever. But God, in his grace, chose to liberate them. And he chose a man called Moses to do that. So he sent Moses along to try and convince the Pharaoh to let the people go. But you know what happened every time uh, Moses went, Pharaoh said, no, I will not let God's people go. I will not let your people go. I will not let your people go. God sent plague after plague after plague upon the land, but the Pharaoh was too hard-hearted. He would not let the people go. So God dealt his final hand. This night, um, God speaks to Moses, and he actually t tells Moses to uh, tell, tell all of Israel, Moses, go get a lamb, unblemished lamb from the flock, Tell everyone to slaughter it. Then they're to paint the blood upon the doorposts of their house. And then they're to share a meal of roast lamb and flatbread and bitter herbs. This is the Lord's Passover. This is the first Passover. And Exodus 12 verse 12 says this. This is why they need to do that. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You see, what happened in this final judgment of God on uh, Egypt and their sin and the enslavement of God's people is that um, God went through the land and every firstborn of every family was judged, was killed. A tragic, horrible affair. But those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, God's judgment passed over. 
That's why it's called the Passover. The judgment of God passed over. He showed mercy to them. And when this actually happened back then, this was actually the key act that forced, you know, that broke Pharaoh. He let Israel go, and God redeemed his people through this act, this final act of the judgment on Egypt. And God's people were redeemed. They were saved. They were liberated from slavery. And this event defined who God's people were for all of history going forward. The Passover, there, is, this was not, there was nothing more significant for the people of God. And as the, as the disciples, all those years later, they were eating with Jesus Christ at this table. They were thinking of these themes of liberation, of freedom from slavery, of the death of the Lamb. And all these themes come together in the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. They're all coming to their ultimate fulfillment. Because this is what Jesus is saying. A new Passover is here. A new Passover is here. A time of redemption, a time of freedom, a time of liberation from slavery. And this is not just slavery to some earthly tyrant that's enslaving you. This is slavery from the ultimate enemy. Slavery from death. You will get freedom from this. Freedom from death. Freedom from sin, true liberation, true redemption. This is what's coming. This is a new Passover. That's what Jesus Christ is saying to them. Freedom from the power of sin itself. And how will this come and get about? Well, remember Jesus' words at this meal. He takes the bread and breaks it and says, This is my body. He takes a cup of wine and gives it to his disciples and says, This is my blood, the new covenant poured out for you. Friends, it's through the broken body of Jesus Christ. It's through the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. It is through the sacrifice of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, that this redemption will come about, that this new Passover will come about. This is a sacrifice that we all need. Because when we think about it, we stand under the judgment of God. All of us. That's you, that's me. Just like Egypt back then, we stand in the same place of being under God's anger, God's judgment, because we are people who are against Him in our hearts. We are, we are sinners. We don't live for Him like we should. For some of you, you'll feel that acutely. You know that you're a sinner. You struggle with that each and every day. You know that you do wrong. Even if you don't believe in God, you got to have a sense that, man, I'm not living rightly. I'm not good enough. And you feel that acutely in your hearts. For others, you don't at all. But if you dig down a few layers, I guarantee you, you will actually find your hearts, there's a deep dissatisfaction there. You know that things aren't right. You know that you've done things which are terrible, or you've thought things which are terrible, and they're not right. And for this, all of us, friends, we stand under the righteous judgment of God. God's anger awaits us on that final day. And we can do nothing about this. By ourselves, we can do nothing to turn away the judgment of God. Because it's right. It's just. But let me tell you, Jesus can do something. And Jesus has. Because like the blood of the the Lamb poured out for the Israelites all those years ago, 
meant that God's judgment passed over them. The blood of the Lamb of God poured out for us means that God's judgment can pass over us. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb, the ultimate Passover Lamb, the sacrifice once and for all that saves us, that takes away our sin, that takes away God's judgment so that we can be saved. That Lamb that died. This is the blood on the doorpost. And sometimes we talk about, you know, sacrifices and death and things like that, and it's part of the Bible, but... Really, it was a horrific thing because death needed to happen. Death needed to happen as payment for sin. And for us, Jesus Christ was that lamb that paid for us in his death, which means that the penalty has been paid. God's anger has been satisfied. The judgment passes over us because the lamb of God, his blood, is upon us as a sign and seal of our redemption. We stand safe under God's anger if we trust in Christ and his blood spilt for us. This blood, it brings about salvation from judgment. But not only that, let me tell you another aspect. It brings about a new covenant, which means a new way of dealing with God. Mark 14, 24 says this, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. Now, let me tell you about uh, this new way, this new covenant that Jesus Christ brings about. It's not about following rules. It's not about being religious. It's not about making sure you do the right ceremonies to be right with God. It's about one thing. It's about faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. That's what this new covenant is about. This is how we deal with God. This is the only way we deal with God today. If you have faith in Christ, here's the deal. You will not only have um, salvation from sin and judgment, but you will have a celebration in heaven waiting for you with the King. That's what's to come with the new covenant. Um, did you notice how Jesus says in this verse, he, he won't drink, we will not drink again, he will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about a future reality in the kingdom of God, that future reality waiting all those who trust in Jesus Christ, which is a celebration, a celebration, a feast. Jesus is alluding to a feast that will happen in the future. This isn't a new idea. This is something that's come up all throughout scriptures. Isaiah 25, the prophet Isaiah says this, 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. I don't know about you, but when I think of some of my happiest memories here on this earth, it involves uh, good food with good company. I don't know if that's true for you guys. But sharing a a good meal with those that you love, those are moments of joy, aren't they? Sometimes when I'm in those moments, I think to myself, well, this this is a little slice of heaven. 
You know, it's a bit of a reflection of what it'll be. And it's true because this is what it'll be like. You know, when we get to uh, that future reality, you know, if you trust in Jesus Christ and you, 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 you go into the kingdom of God, you know, it won't be a place where we're sitting on clouds and playing harps and it's just boring. All right? That is not heaven. That is not the picture the Bible ever gives us. Do you know what the picture is? It's a feast. It's a celebration. You see those lines there? The best of meats and the finest of wines. This is a banquet. This will be the finest foods you have ever had. The finest celebration that ever will be. And it's not just good food, but think of the company. Because you know who will be there? Jesus Christ, your King, your Saviour. And not only that, God the Father Himself will be there. You will get to share a table with God. Celebrating. In joy, pure joy. And why will you be celebrating? Because have a look at those verses. Verses 7. He will destroy the shroud that unfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Why, do you, why will we be celebrating? Why will we be having this feast in the new creation, this new kingdom of God? It's because God has defeated death and sin forever. And there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more mourning and no more crying. God himself will wipe away the tears from our faces. This is something to celebrate. This is perfection, friends. That's what awaits those who trust in Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant dealing for us. It's pure joy, friends. Isn't that something you'd want to be a part of? But if you trust in Jesus Christ, you can be. That's the new covenant. Faith in Christ means a celebration for eternity with the King in pure joy. Sometimes when we live in this world, we forget. We really forget what we're heading for. We think the things of this world are going to be better. But next time you're having a good meal with good friends and you're experiencing that joy that comes with that, I want you to grab hold of that feeling and I want you to take that feeling and amplify it a hundred thousand times and think about it extending into eternity and you'll start getting a slight taste of what the kingdom of God will be like. That pure joy that comes with celebrating and feasting with your king. Nothing else is better than that, friends. Don't replace the things of this world with the eternal blessings of the future. Remember this, we are not only saved from judgment and sin, but we are saved for eternal joy and celebrating in the kingdom of God. We're not only saved from judgment and sin, but we're saved for eternal joy and celebration in the kingdom. And that's something to look forward to. This is amazing. It's amazing news, but it comes at a cost. and comes at a huge cost to our king. And we're at point three, Jesus, the obedient son. After the Last Supper, Jesus actually takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives and he says to them, um, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, uh, watch out, uh, you know, I'm going to go pray, but I want you guys to keep a, watch it, a lookout for me. Okay? So Jesus, well, actually, before he says that, he, actually, he tells them, tells all of them, you're going to fall away from me, you're going to desert me. Once again, Peter, because he's got the biggest mouth, says, no, Jesus, I will not, I will never do that. Even if they kill me, I'll never deny you. But Jesus turns to him and says, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, Peter. 
and the disciples, they keep objecting and complaining, but Jesus goes on, he takes them to the garden of Gethsemane. He says, you guys wait here. He takes three of his closest disciples with him and he says, keep watch, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go pray. And he becomes distressed and troubled and he says to his disciples this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Jesus Christ, the King, in deep distress. We haven't seen this from him before, have we? This deep sorrowful distress. What, what could it be? Well, let's read on. I'm going a little farther, so verse 35. Going a little farther, he, fought, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Sometimes we talk about Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross in this sort of like cold, sort of objective sort of way that this was just part of the plan. You know, Jesus needed to go to the cross, just needed to happen. And, you know, Jesus knew that, so it was all good, you know, very cold and objective. But we see here today that this was not the case. For Jesus Christ going to the cross, this was, this was sheer distress for him. Because he knew what waited for him at the cross. He knew what waited for him. The judgment of his own father. This was not an easy thing for Jesus. We need to gr grab this truth. This was not an easy thing for Jesus to just go to the cross and die for us. He faced immense suffering and pain there. He would be beaten to a pulp. He would be shamed and hung naked and humiliated on that cross, dying the death of a criminal. And that's just the beginning. Because what really caused him that distress, what really caused him that pain, was the fact that his father it was going to pour out his full anger on him. The beloved son would face the full anger of his father poured out for him. The sins of the world, our sins, brought together like the rays of light through a magnifying glass, just burning into Jesus Christ. That's what he would feel, that relational pain, that relational suffering. That is what caused Jesus that distress. That is what caused him that pain, for him to actually say to his father, if there's any other way, any other way, father, then let it be so. Because I don't want to face this. Have you ever thought about Jesus like that? The pain that he was going to go through, that relational suffering that he would undergo as the son facing the anger of his father, the pain that caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me before he died? Jesus didn't want to face that. But hear what he says. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Friends, Jesus is the perfectly obedient Son. He does the will of His Father perfectly in a way that we never could. He's a true human. He struggled because He was human as well as God, but He was perfectly obedient. Not my will, but yours, Father. And this obedience took Him to the cross for us. Do you realize the price that Jesus paid for us? Do you realize what it costs the king to forgive our sins? This was not a small thing, friends. 
This was the greatest pain that Jesus Christ ever endured. The pain of facing the wrath of his own father. But he did it for us because he's our king, the servant king. He serves us with his very life. In the midst of sorrow, Jesus returns to his disciples. He just returns as he's struggling with this and he finds them sleeping three times. The third time, Mark 14, 41, he says, he's returning the third time. He said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hand of sinners. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas comes. And this is at night time. It's in the color of darkness. Judas comes with a crowd of thugs armed with swords and clubs to take Jesus Christ. Judas walks up to Jesus and he holds him and he says one way, he says, Rabbi, and he kisses Jesus. A sign for the betrayers for the soldiers to take him, these thugs. So they lay hands on Jesus to take him. The disciples, they start fighting. They draw a sword. They cut off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. They're trying to fight for their king. Jesus says this, verse 48 50. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. They fled. Friends, this is where we leave the narrative today. And what do we see with the people that have been following Jesus and been with him since day one? We see his disciples falling asleep on Jesus in his biggest time of need. And then we see them deserting him and fleeing. This is the response of the disciples to their king. I wonder for you, what is your response to the king? What will be your response to the king today? I hope you've seen who Jesus is today. I hope you've gotten a bigger picture of who Jesus is today because that will shape your response of how you react to the king, won't it? I hope you've seen that Jesus Christ is worthy of all worship worthy of all worship, everything you've got, and that will look ridiculous to the world, but he's worth it, and that's a beautiful thing in his eyes. I hope you've seen that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. And this sacrifice, his blood painted on us, this is an eternal sacrifice that will mean safety from God's judgment for eternity. God's anger passing over us. And I hope you've seen that Jesus Christ as the obedient son, the truly obedient son. I hope you've seen how much this has cost him. This was not a small thing. This was the greatest pain he ever faced. And he did that for you. He did that for me. He did that for sinners that didn't deserve it. And we can come to him today. And if we trust in him, we will have life for eternity. Jesus wants you to do something. He wants you to trust in Him and He wants you to worship Him. That's the call from the passage today. And let me tell you, this King, Jesus, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the King that deserves our trust. He deserves our faith and He deserves our worship. There is no other. Let me pray. Father God, we thank You for Christ the ultimate Passover lamb who died for us, 
And we thank you that he did so even when he struggled in distress and he was in pain, thinking about the sheer horror of what was to face him on that cross. We thank you that we, we receive this gift even when undeserving and that this is available for any of us now that trust in him. Help us to live lives of worship to our king, not worshipping the things of this world, but worshipping the one true king that deserves it. By your Holy Spirit, help us, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.